Uh, But as we continue thinking about comfort in Isaiah 40, we've seen uh, this this Advent in Isaiah 40, the comfort that comes in the herald, John the Baptist, coming and proclaiming Christ. We've seen the comfort that we receive in his message of pardon for sin. We've seen the comfort in the fact that God's word endures forever. So what Isaiah proclaimed and what John proclaimed is still comfort for you. We've seen comfort in the fact that the one who saves us is both the the mighty victor and the tender shepherd. And we've seen the comfort in the fact that he is also the creator. And now we turn to verses 18 through 26 this morning. So let's give our attention to the word of Almighty God. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that we would see what it puts before us. Yes, that we would behold you, great God, through this your word. And beholding that we would know comfort and joy this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having previously put... Uh, the creator on display, which we started looking at last week, especially verses 12 through 17. Uh, that section concluded with a challenge and that was included in the sermon last week as well. The challenge, which is the beginning of our text today. Who, to whom then will you liken 
God. Isaiah is one of those brilliant writers. You know, you can read books and there are fun writers. And there are brilliant writers. You might enjoy a novel that has not the greatest literary value, but it's fun. And then there's the novel that's fun and just poetry. And Isaiah is one of the, the most brilliant writers, human writers, of the scriptures. He's intellectual and simple. He's poetic and straightforward. And I think his outlines can be brilliant as well. He transitions and the transitions go with both parts brilliantly. Here's one of those examples. He has just been talking about God, the creator, the one who holds all the water in the cup of his hand and who knows all the dust in the universe, speck by speck, particle by particle. And he concludes that with, to whom will you liken God? But, but then he gets into a new section and bookends that section with that thought. To whom will you liken God? Verse 26, uh, verse 25, I'm sorry. To whom then will you liken me? It's a bookending the section. He's going to answer that question or at least put that question to the test in our verses today. And then verse 25 also serves as the, the perfect introduction to the final application, which we'll look at next week. It's just brilliantly written and beautifully written. And here he asks this question, to whom will you liken God? And then he asks a second question, and what likeness will you compare to him? Now in Hebrew, often, uh, and you'll know this if you read devotional books that talk about the Hebrew any, uh, that the Hebrew often would put two phrases that say the exact same thing to make a point, right? Poetically. Uh, we still do that in poetry and in English as well sometimes. But this isn't one of those moments. This doesn't fit that quite. Because in the Hebrew of this double question, there's a slight difference between the two questions. And in fact, it's one that God uses to mock his adversaries. Because the first question, to whom then will you liken God, implies a living being. To what living being will you liken God? But the second question to the Hebrew mind would imply an idol. Or what likeness? Meaning, what carved image? What carved presentation of deity will you liken him to? And you see what Isaiah is doing there. He's making a mockery of idols, even in the questions. Is there a living being? Oh, no living being. What about a non-living being? He's smearing the lack of breath of idolatry in the, the face of God's enemies. And so he's going to answer these two questions, starting with the, the dumb, the dead, the lifeless thing. What image can you compare to me, the living God. And in essence, verses 19 and 20 are showing us 
that images fail to compare to God because they are lifeless, powerless, comfortless, cold imaginations of men's hearts. That's it. That's all it is. And look at how he makes this point here. He presents idols. And if we were to try to, I tried to make a list of what these two verses teach us about idols. Images. Any image of God. What can we say of it? Well, there, there are several things here. We could say that the image, whatever image, is made not self-existing. It's of shifting worth and value. It's in danger of deterioration. And it's in danger of toppling over. And its value and its shifting value is based on the success of its own followers. Let's look at each of those a little bit this morning and compare to the one living in true God. So first, these images are made. They aren't self-existing. Of course, this is the point that's made over and over in the prophets, isn't it? Over and over. Uh, it, it's, it's made so many times that um, scholars who don't have anything better to do waste their time trying to argue who was copying whom of the prophets. Well, I, I think that's a foolish endeavor. The point is the most obvious point ever made about an image, isn't it? It didn't make itself. Whatever Aaron said. Remember Aaron? In the wilderness. Oh, Moses must be dead. He's been gone for far too long and God must have killed him on the mountain. What do we do? Well, bring me all your gold and silver. And we read in the books of Moses that uh, Aaron fashioned an image. But then what does he say a few minutes later? Oh, well, Moses, actually, I just threw all this gold into the fire and poof, the image came out. It's the kind of thing that pagans, I'm not calling Aaron a pagan, but pagans whom he was liking, living like in that moment have always had to come up with reasons why their gods are of value or are powerful when they make them themselves. So they, they have to come up with things like, well, it magically appeared one night or something like that. But no, Isaiah is clear. These are not uh, self-existing images. They require a workman, a goldsmith, maybe a silversmith, or at least someone who can carve halfway decently a piece of wood. They require creatures, on the other hand, and they require subjects to even exist. And compare that to God, the eternal, self-existing God. Verse 21 uh, has it subtly, doesn't it? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? And you know what? You understood it from the foundations of the earth. You may be suppressing it now, but you knew. Think of Genesis 1.1. I, 
I, I've been reflecting on Genesis a lot this Advent, and it's been thoroughly enjoyable. And I'll reflect on it a little bit this evening as well with you. Um, but Genesis 1.1 begins how? In the beginning, God came into being, and then he created. No. No, 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 no. The Israelites know better than that. In the beginning, God created, which necessarily assumes he already existed and existed outside of any created thing. No particle of dust out in the void of a universe. No uh, atoms or molecules shifting and suddenly there he was. This is the self-existing God, and they know this. And in verse 26, which we'll come to, of course, next week, we'll have this pushed, I'm sorry, 28, we'll have this pushed in our face even more. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. They've known this. They do know this. And... Romans 1 tells us all humanity knows this, but we suppress it in unrighteousness. And instead we go out and we create idols and false gods and lift things up in our hearts. Even if we don't take wood or stone to do that, when we create something in our heart that takes the first priority, it's never something that was already existing. Think about that. Think of a relationship, for example. In a relationship, someone can become God to you. But it's never the actual person, is it? It's always an idealized version, one in which you write off any of their faults and flaws and create something that isn't really them. And that's why when we make another person our end all and be all it never lasts long on such a pedestal because we create an image of a a god that isn't really that person and then they can't they can't keep up with it can they or take any number of other things that you put as a god in your heart. Money. Money will let you down. Every time. Possessions will let you down. Every time. So here the first contrast. Here are these idols. The likeness of a God. Can they stand up to the self-existing God when you have to create them? And you're not as good of a creator as you think you are. Or the second one, which I'm actually going to, since it overlaps with the last point about the idols, I'm going to do them together at the end, but of shifting worth and value. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the, the, they're also in danger of deteriorating. De, I can't get the word out today. Rotting. They're in danger of uh, rotting or rusting or, you know, the word that I can't say today for some reason that all of those things fall under. You have to pull out a piece of wood that's not going to rot. 
There are better woods and worse woods, but is there any wood that will last eternity? What about silver and gold? I was, I was thinking about when, when the, the French gave us the Statue of Liberty. Looked different, didn't it? Didn't last very long at all, looking the way it did. And none of us living today think of it as anything but green. Right? Silver, gold, metals do not last forever. They are in danger of rust and rot, of the moth coming and destroying, of the termite eating away, of all of these various things, the salt uh, turning it green. They're also in danger of toppling over. And that's why you have to make sure you get a good woodsmith. You, you don't want to hire someone to make your wooden image who's going to make him top-heavy or her top-heavy. That wouldn't be great. Even, even the people who can afford the, the better, the better images have to worry about that. Have you ever wondered in verse 19 why you need silver chains for your idols? Pagans would actually chain their large golden or rock statue to the wall in its own house, temple, so that it wouldn't fall over. You don't want that happening. Well, that, that would never happen. That, that could never happen, could it? You go back and read 1 Samuel 5, you see why they built chains for their idols, don't you? Here is Dagon. He defeated Yahweh, supposedly. Yahweh, in the form of the ark, is, is thrown in, it, at the feet of Dagon. They all go to sleep that night, feeling good about their God. And they come in in the morning, and there's Dagon on his face before the ark. Well, you know, maybe it was an earthquake, and we slept through it. Maybe, uh, maybe Joe, who built the idol, just wasn't very good with balance or something. So they stick the idol back up. But you know how the story ends, not just on his face before Yahweh, but shattered before Yahweh. And if, if you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and that happens to your God, you don't say, well, obviously we ought to worship Yahweh God. We should get rid of our images and, and worship the one living and true God. No, if you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you say, I guess we need to call up the silversmith today and get some really good chains in here and bolt him to the wall so he won't go anywhere. Or, or you know, so no one steals him. Because you never know when the tribe of Dan's going to come by and just take all your idols and haul them off and make them their own. So you better chain it to the wall. Just think of that kind of God. In danger of rust and rot, in danger of toppling over all of this opposed to God. Infinite and unchangeable. From the beginning, you've known this to be the case. And he's still sitting 
above the earth. Israel, this hasn't changed. He didn't create in the beginning and then go away. He's not on vacation. He's not taking a nap as Elijah the prophet so uh, crudely points out some of these things about idols. He's still there above the circle of the earth watching the inhabitants of the earth. He sits on high. In fact, his infinity and unchangeableness is emphasized by the way Isaiah words this, that he sits above the circle of the earth. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying there? He's not saying that the earth is a circle. That's not what that language is saying. He's saying that wherever you look on the horizon, the circle of the earth is the horizon, right? You, you turn, wherever you turn, there he is. Now think of the pagan mythologies of their gods. They, they could be quite big. But they were only relatively big. And if one appeared, you would look a certain direction and see them, right? If, if God was just the size of planet Earth, then we would all look to the south and see God off. Well, that, that's not, I, I know that's not so. We, we'd all look to the south or west or wherever and, and we'd see God. But Isaiah say, no, you can turn any direction on the horizon. He is so far beyond us and above us and infinite beyond us that wherever you look, he's watching. This is the kind of God. He doesn't rust. He doesn't change. He doesn't fall over. In fact, he is so far above us. There's nothing in creation that could move him. Because he is indeed outside of creation. And we're going to see that even more emphatically in a moment. Well, then there's, there's the other two things I mentioned. That the idols are of shifting worth and that their value is based on the success of their followers. And you see that in verse 1920 as well, don't you? you? You need an idol. You need a god. For your home. Uh, but you're a poor farmer. You, you can't afford a goldsmith. So what do you do? You find the best wood you can find and have it carved. Try not to topple it over because you can't afford the chains. But, but then maybe you have a bumper harvest. You have a, a windfall of some sort. And uh, now you can upgrade. Maybe you can afford a stone god now. Maybe you gift the wooden one to one of your children or a poor cousin. Now you have a stone god. Oh, and then you have another really good year. And maybe you can afford to have some gold leaf or something put on that stone. Accentuate the eyes or something like that. And then you have another great year. And now you can have the whole thing dipped in gold. Now you're at the peak of society. Your God has blessed you so much that you can make your God look better. And, and now you can maybe even afford the chains just so no peasant comes and steals your God or it topples over or whatever. See, see the, the value of the image itself is dependent on 
the, the success of the followers. There's another way we see this throughout Scripture and the ancient Near East as well. And that is that whenever someone conquered another people, what was their claim? Our God conquered your God. And so when the Babylonians who are about to take, they're about to take Israel, or they're about to take Jerusalem, not long after Isaiah prophesies this, or those who had already taken northern Israel, when they take such, they claim Yahweh has been defeated by our gods. Our gods get a little bit higher in the pantheon of gods now because they defeated your God. We're going to mock you for that too. Sing us a song about Jerusalem and about your God now that you and your God have been dragged away to the temple of our God. So the value of your God is dependent also on your success in battle. Strange how with the, the idolatry, there's never that comprehension that you're having a circular reasoning. We won the battle because our God is better. And our God is better because we won the battle. Is the success and value of God dependent on his followers? I want to look at verses 22 and 23 again. Because clearly his value and success are not dependent on us. He sits above the circle of the earth and looks down on us like grasshoppers. See how Isaiah doesn't even differentiate Yahweh's followers from the rest of mankind? You're all just a bunch of grasshoppers to God. Your success, what success of a grasshopper is going to improve your life and your value? If you're God looking down on something that's as far below you, actually infinitely further below you than a grasshopper is below you, then how can that thing ever do something that would increase your glory and power, and might. Of course it can't. Grasshoppers are too far below. No, it's God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And he's the one that topples princes and judges and nations. He doesn't change, but he, he changes the value that various peoples get to claim. Really want to focus for a moment on that language of him stretching out the heavens like a curtain and spreading them like a tent to dwell in. It's nomadic language. It's the picture of, you know, you're not in a civilized city. You're not in a, 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 a nice town. You're out in the desert and the wilderness and it's, about to be nighttime, you pitch the tent for somewhere to have shelter, maybe shade from the, the heat in the afternoon or uh, maybe uh, from the, the cold and the beasts at night. You pitch the tent. It's a nomadic uh, phrase that's used here. And, and I was astonished the past few weeks as I was studying commentaries and really looking at the Hebrew here to, to realize for whom is this tent spread? 
it's not spread for God. He's not setting up his tent to dwell in. And we ought to know that with, without needing to know any Hebrew or reading difficult commentaries on Isaiah 40. We ought to be able to know that like Isaiah knew it. Because Solomon has already declared this when the temple was dedicated. Remember? Second Chronicles 2.6 The highest heavens cannot contain him. So when Isaiah is saying that God spreads out the heavens, that, that's just the ancient way of saying the universe, the galaxies, have been spread out like a nomadic tent for someone to dwell in. Isaiah knew it couldn't be for God to dwell in. Because the highest heavens, the fullest place in the universe, cannot contain this God. His value is far beyond that. So for whom is this tent being spread out by God? It's for planet Earth. When you look at verse 22, it's the object that he's observing for which he spreads a tent. I want you to think about that for a moment. I find it quite astonishing and important in our day and age for a number of reasons. Uh, One, because we know scientifically that the The universe does not circle, neither does our solar system, circle planet Earth. It's not, from a scientific point of view, our our planet is not the center of everything. In fact, we have this universe put before us by scientists. The, The current theory is that the universe is constantly expanding outward. It's getting bigger every moment. But this passage tells us, give it a billion more years to expand. It won't be big enough for God to hunch down underneath and come into the tent just based on size like that. It's not big enough for him. We're also told that uh, we are an insignificant people on an insignificant ball in a rather average to small solar system, in a seemingly infinite universe. But notice what God tells us, not about the science of how the universe works, but about his priorities, how he ranks things, and the order he has given it in his mind as he created. Here, by declaring that he observes the earth, And spread out the entire universe as a tent in which to house planet Earth and its grasshopper-like peoples. That is giving value, isn't it? That is our God giving value to we grasshoppers. That is astonishing. That on this one little speck of dust in this solar system, in this universe, God has created his image bearer. Humankind made in the image of God. That's a unique thing in the universe. A lot of people are talking about aliens again. I guess that just is cyclical, isn't it? 
every couple of years it gets right now it's popular again because the government said something whatever whatever your thoughts on intelligent life out there might be the reality is this there is only one image bearer god created and it's on this planet and that should boggle our minds with the value God has given us. And that he cares enough to watch this planet and shelter this planet in this universe. Even though he is vast beyond the universe itself. How's that for comfort? Comfort my people, says your God. What kind of God? Not like those idols, not like the likenesses. How do the likenesses then compare based on these things? They don't, do they? No comparison. Well, what about the first question he asked then? The the living being. What living being can compare to me? Let's just narrow that down a little bit. We've just been talking about image bearer. Let's narrow it down to image bearer. What image bearer? If anything in creation is going to challenge God, it's going to be that which he made the pinnacle in his image, isn't it? That, that's logical. That makes sense. So just thinking about the image bearers, how do they compare? Is there a living being who can compete with him? Well, again, we're referred to as grasshoppers, so that's not off to a great start. But notice the other things God says about this comparison. Bring in the, the most important or powerful people of any age. Bring in the princes, he says. How do the princes and rulers, might they have a shot? What are they? God says, nothing. They don't even get the description of the idols. Did you notice that? They're just put in front of us and we're told they're nothing. What about the judges, the most brilliant, wise judges of the earth? Useless. Useless in comparison. But what if we could take them and collect them together as nations? Well, look back at verse 17 that we looked at last week. They are, the nations, all of them together, not just nations individually, but take all of the nations in the history of the world and put them together. Put Babylon and Rome and Persia and Egypt and the United States and the USSR and everything else and put them together as one great cabal against the Lord. And what does verse 17 say? They are counted by him less than nothing. And worthless. How do living beings compare? You know, what if, what if we took all the most powerful people of our own culture and got them to put politics aside for a moment so that they could uh, unite together against the Lord? If we took all the, the Bidens and Trumps and Obamas and Clintons and Bushes and all the Elon Musks of the world and all, the, all of the Bill Gates and, and everyone like that, and they could all work together against God. 
Would they together compare with all their boasted pomp and show? Verse 24 says that they will be like grass, dry grass, in the face of a hurricane. Just gone. Or as Psalm 2 puts it, the Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No, not even the most powerful Imago Dei can stand against God. And so we're back to where we began. Not just with verse 18, to whom can you liken me? But we're back to that comforting thought that was way back in verse 9. Behold your God. Behold him. There is none who can compare to him. And then let's increase the amazement and comfort of this by remembering where we stand in history in the last days. Because unlike when Isaiah stood on earth, we have lived to see a moment when there is a likeness that compares with God. That's what we're celebrating at Advent, isn't it? If you're not celebrating that at Advent, you're not celebrating Advent, biblically. Remember what Hebrews declares of the second person of the holy undivided trinity, God's Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Philippians 2 takes up this point. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. John 1 takes up that thought, this idea of his no reputation. It says he tabernacled, he tented among us. He whom the heavens of heavens, the universe, cannot contain, took on flesh to dwell among us grasshoppers. Philippians 2 continues, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 1 takes this up again then. He by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels that he has by inheritance obtained a much more excellent name than they. Behold your God in the flesh, incomparable. There is none like him. And history has been proving that over and over, hasn't it? Take all the false gods of every age. And how many have a birthday celebrated for 2,000 years 
and by many who don't even call him Lord. It doesn't make sense. Unless he's the incomparable God in the flesh. How should we respond to beholding this God? Well, you know, I think, I think few have ever responded better than that teenage girl so long ago. Oh, that we could respond to Isaiah 40 as Mary responded to the word of her God when she declared, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. By the way, she's telling us right there by inspiration, we'll be celebrating Christ's birth till the end of time. Won't stop next year. No country can forbid it and have it just cease. All generations will call her blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his majesty is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, but exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Dear friends, behold your God.